This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Emily Herslin. Emily is a mind-body instructor with Wild Cornell Medicine in New York City. She's also the founder of Mindful Astoria, a meditation community in Queens. Emily has been trained as a meditation teacher through the Interdependence Project and the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I, I first wanted to start out with just an interesting exercise. I don't know, have you ever seen the Calm Meditation commercials? I have seen some of them, yes. So I know there's one recently that they just kind of say, like, do nothing for, for 30 seconds. I thought it would be like a fun exercise just for us and, and our listeners to kind of just pause here um, and see what that's like. I love that. Let's do it. So that was just about a minute, and I guess my first question to you is, could you just describe like that experience for you, like how you spent that time and uh, sort of how you tuned in to that mindful moment? Sure. For me, that was, as you said, you know, an attempt at a moment of doing nothing, of just just sitting, letting go of the to-do list, the planning. You know, what am I going to say next? What's he going to say next? Um, and just feeling that I'm sitting here right now and hearing the different sounds in the environment around me outside on the street and inside my apartment, feeling the movement of my breath. I think I noticed my heart beating at one, at one moment. So all of these different sensations and experiences, um, that come and go in that, in that moment. And then, you know, even as, you know, we're sitting there with the intention of doing nothing, our, our mind doesn't always go along with that. So, you know, the mind gets pulled off into thinking about, you know, what's going to happen next or how much time has it been? Or, you know, I wonder if the people listening to this are wondering, how, you know, what's going on right now? And then, oh, okay, look at what's going on. Let's let that go and just come back to just what's happening. I'm just sitting here and waiting. That's really all that's going on right now. Yeah, and I felt like, like I was kind of trying to do some of the same things. <laughs> like, I like that you said attempt, but, um, <laughs> you know, you can only sort of grab it for like, or not grab it, but experience that for like a millisecond and then your your mind kind of uh just sort of takes over on autopilot again but um i guess i'll just direct this to like a broader question of of what is mindfulness and do you use that word uh interchangeably with meditation that's a great question um the word mindfulness and the word meditation 
um, do not mean the same thing, at least in my training. Um, mindfulness is a way of paying attention. Um, I, you know, there's many different definitions of mindfulness in my training, you know, in particular in the mindfulness-based stress reduction community. Um, we talk about mindfulness as a way of paying attention on purpose in the present moment without judgment or with kindness. And so it is this particular way of paying attention to what is going on right now, uh, which might be an experience we're having in our bodies, our sensations, um, or our emotions, how we're feeling, or even having uh, awareness of what our thoughts are and or that we are having thoughts in the first place. Um, this is an intentional kind of attention, not the way that often we're sort of pushed and pulled around by our thoughts and feelings, likes and dislikes. So we're cultivating this ability to pay attention. And we're doing this with um, this this attitude of kindness and friendliness towards ourselves and towards our experience. So often, especially when we're stressed or having a hard time, um, we can be very hard on ourselves. We can be very judgmental, critical, and this doesn't usually doesn't help us to feel better. In fact, it usually makes us feel worse. And so when we're practicing mindfulness, we're paying attention to what's going on right now with the same kind of attitude that we would give to someone we care about, to someone we love. Um, and so that's, that's, that's mindfulness. Meditation, there's many different kinds of meditation. Um, there's mindfulness meditation, there's transcendental meditation, um, there's movement meditations like yoga. Um, so there's a lot of different kinds of meditation. When we practice mindfulness meditation, we are, we're cultivating mindfulness through this formal practice of meditation. So meditation is, is putting your attention on something for a period of time intentionally. And that's what you're cultivating in that moment. So do you feel like mindfulness is just more of kind of an attitude where meditation kind of brings in more of a specific practice uh, to it? I, I would say generally, generally, yes. Um, mindfulness is something that doesn't, uh, we don't want it to just stay with us only when we're meditating. We want to bring this way of being mindful um, throughout all of our all of our day, as much of our day as possible. So we don't want to leave it behind when we get up from our seat, from our meditation seat. Um, but we really, we want to live mindfully. So it's absolutely something that we want to uh, carry with us and, and bring with us and have with us throughout our day. Can you elaborate more on the techniques uh, you teach? Um within Mindful Astoria or your work at Wild Cornell um, and perhaps in other uh, settings? Yeah, so I'm, I am trained as a mindful mindfulness meditation teacher. Um, so, you know, different techniques that, that I tend to teach all point in that direction. Um, so I might 
teach mindfulness of breathing, where we uh, experience the sensations of our breathing moment by moment, and then our mind wanders away, we notice it, we bring it back to the breath. You don't have to use the breath um, as your anchor. I think it's important for a lot of people to know that um, breath is not some gold standard of meditation practice. It's just a very common one. But for a lot of people, breathing may not be so comfortable or so easeful or might be bound up in, in trauma or anxiety. And so you can use another grounding sensation other than the breath. You can feel your feet on the floor. You can feel your hands in your lap. You can just have a sense of your body sitting here right now. Um, so we do a lot. I do a lot of practice with those grounding anchors as well. Um, body scan meditations where we move our attention throughout the different parts of our bodies, explore what's there. Um, walking meditation, uh, mindful movement, very gentle stretching mindfully. Um, I also teach a lot of loving kindness and self-compassion meditation um, as well. How do you uh, translate some of those things over to sort of a clinical setting at Wild Cornell? Yeah, um, well, so I, I teach meditation in sort of a number of different settings through my work at Wild Cornell. And obviously right now things are, um, are different because of the pandemic. And it's also been very interesting, um, and also very inspiring to see how that work has shifted and been really beneficial during the pandemic. Um, so I guess, you know, maybe to talk about pre COVID, pre COVID times when we were in person, um, I was doing a fair amount of work in uh, one of the infusion centers um, with patients as they were receiving chemotherapy or immunotherapy infusions. Um, often those patients, as you probably know, are there for a long time sometimes, and it can be a very stressful, chaotic uh, environment with a lot of sounds and a lot of anxiety. And so I would sit with patients and guide them in different kinds of mindfulness meditation or guided relaxation practices um, just to help them meet, you know, what was going on in that moment to give some tools for breathing, reducing anxiety, even helping them to fall asleep, get some rest. Um, also, um, teaching groups. Groups have continued during the pandemic. I've been doing a number of different online groups and that's definitely one of the good things about meditation is that it's a modality that works online. It actually works very well um, online. And so um, actually one of the highlights for me personally, you know, if we can talk about highlights during, during a pandemic has been uh, just developing these really wonderful online meditation communities of patients coming together almost every day to just sit and meditate together. Um, and so that can be done as more of a drop-in, you know, come when you can group, 
Um, and also, you know, courses such as mindfulness-based stress reduction, the eight-week course, we've continued to do that online as well. Um, and so patients, you know, might come to any of these sessions um, for a number of different reasons. They might be referred for, uh, for chronic pain, for anxiety, for difficulty sleeping, um, for depression, uh, for just general health worries, health anxiety. Um, maybe they have a procedure or a surgery coming up and uh, they're looking for ways to help prepare themselves for that, to, um, to help with healing, to help reduce stress leading up to it um, and afterwards. Um, and so they might be referred by a doctor in the hospital or one of the integrative health physicians or the other um, one of the other clinicians in the department for for any of these particular reasons or or it's just that they've always had a curiosity about meditation and and this is a good time for them to give it a try. You you mentioned a, a number of different uh like reasons why uh, people would come and and seek out your services at say Wild Cornell. Um, do you have to be careful in like a healthcare setting how you sort of like set goals of the practice? I feel like yeah that experience would be very different outside versus outside of a like a hospital setting versus inside because I imagine a lot of the people who come through your door or I guess nowadays you're a virtual yeah. door. <laughs> Uh, you know, they're very hopeful to, to find results and healing uh, in this practice. So how do you kind of uh, reframe that to make it, you know, both optimistic and realistic? Absolutely. I, you know, I do, I do meet a lot of patients that want meditation to cure their pain or or cure their anxiety or, you know, make it so that they'll never get distracted by anything, you know, ever again. And I don't at all blame them for having those desires. Of course they do. Of course we all do. Um, you know, and I think that there is this sense in our culture and the way that media often portrays meditation as being this, you know, this sort of magical experience that always, you know, that will feel good and you'll have, your mind will be calm and, you know, you'll feel totally at ease. And, and it isn't true. It just isn't always like that. Um, and, you know, especially when we're talking about mindfulness meditation, this is really about being with our present moment experience just as it is without trying to change it, make it go away or hold on to it, which is really very different from, you know, why most people go to see a doctor or medical professional. There's something that we want to change, cure, make go away. Um, so, you know, in terms of how do we work with that? How do we create reasonable expectations? Um, 
there is something to be said for the profound impact that being with our present moment experience in a caring and non-judgmental way can have on us, can help us to suffer less. And so while that may or may not translate to literal reduction in pain levels, which, which it can sometimes, um, but it doesn't always, I think a very big part of our experience of pain or illness is the emotional component, is how we see ourselves in relation to it. And, and that is something that mindfulness and meditation can be very helpful um, in that regard. It can help us to, to see ourselves with greater wholeness, with more compassion, more connected to others, less alone. Um, it can help us to notice what isn't wrong, what is well. And all of that can actually have a very big impact on our experience of our illness or of our pain. And so I tend to focus there in my work um, with patients. Um, and at the same time, you know, the practice of paying attention mindfully to sensations of pain, sensations of discomfort, um, you know, with this attitude of care and curiosity rather than avoidance, judgment, criticism, has been shown to have effects on our perception of our pain levels. And so it's a little bit, it's a little bit of both. Um, but you're absolutely right that it, it is really important to align patients' expectations appropriately and to, you know, to sort of have this conversation about what they've, what they've been told or what they've taken in by our culture and the media and, and what is, you know, what is possible and what are the limits of, of meditation or mindfulness practice. I think everything you just said, uh, probably applies, you know, across the board to a lot of patients that you encounter, but, uh, you did mention a lot of div diverse populations that you are seeing. So how do you alter your approach of introducing mindfulness for somebody who is depressed versus experiencing chronic pain versus somebody who has cancer? Do you kind of, um, you know, implement your, your practice, uh, specific to those patient populations? Well, I always try to get to know the individual, uh, the individual person, the individual patient, you know, learning about what's bringing them to meditate right now, if they've had any experience with meditation before, if that's been, you know, a positive experience or, you know, what they haven't connected with. Um, and, you know, in certain cases, I might offer or, or even request to speak with if they have a therapist, uh, just to make sure that the work that we're doing will be supportive and be in alignment with their, with their journey and, and what's helpful to them. Um, and then I'll try, you know, based on what, what we discuss and what we talk about to, uh, to guide them in, in a practice or towards practices that I think that at that moment might be a response to what they might, um, 
be needing, be going through. And that, that may or may not be different, you know, for different people. Um, but you're right, there is such a wide variety and, um, and sometimes it takes, you know, it takes experimenting with different forms of meditation or different practices to find what you connect with, um, you know, what's really going to be responsive at that time. You also said that uh, you teach mindfulness-based stress, stress reduction. Uh, can you just talk about um, the work of John Kabat-Zinn and, and how he essentially, you know, integrated mindfulness into the healthcare setting? Yeah. So he, John Kabat-Zinn, um, brought meditation, yoga, mindfulness to, um, you know, in the 1970s, what was then the pain clinic at UMass Medical. And, um, you know, he brought it to patients who maybe were not, um, were not benefiting or not getting the full benefits of traditional med medications or therapies, you know, to see what, you know, could this be helpful as well, um, or in addition. And so, um, there is a very, a very strong, um, body of research around this particular curriculum, this eight week MBSR curriculum. And, um, and it's pretty intensive. The eight week course. I don't know if you've taken it. Um, but it, it is a pretty intensive course of two and a half hour classes, a full day silent retreat. So, um, it's pretty intensive. It's, um, it's not right for everybody, uh, at, at every time in their life. It's not the only way to learn mindfulness. It's a really strong beginning though. As I've gathered, though, uh, I heard I, I've heard him speak before, and it was just like part of it is just like repackaging a lot of you know mindfulness techniques that might have seemed foreign to people, and sort of making it a little more manageable by calling it mindfulness-based stress reduction. Do you feel like that's that was sort of part of the secret in the sauce was just like renaming it and like rebranding it to something that might be a little more uh, palatable for a lot of patients? I think. I think that that's possible. You know, mindfulness comes out of the Buddhist tradition, um, which, you know, is, uh, it is a religion and it has its own language and its own history. Um, and I can say that I've definitely, um, you know, shared meditation, taught meditation with people who I'm not sure if they would have felt that they could, for instance, go to a Buddhist meditation center um, for a variety of reasons, maybe their own religion or their own preconceptions about what meditation is. Um, I think that it is a complicated question, you know, how, you know, how much is this cultural appropriation? Um, you know, in this time, it's very important to be aware of where this practice is coming from and to respect the tradition that it's coming from. Um, and how different people 
might be able to learn based on the words that are used, the phrases that are used. Um, I would say that MBSR is, it's a very small piece of Buddhism. It's not the whole path. Mindfulness isn't a complete path. If one is talking about a spiritual path, um, so it's really one piece of of a spiritual path. Your official title at Wild Cornell uh, is like mind body instructor, correct? That is my my title. So, could you talk more about like the mind body connection? Um, and like how, how do you explain that to your patients? So, um, when we talk about the mind body connection, um, you know, I might think about it this way that, um, in a moment of, in a moment of stress, I might want to check in and notice both what's going on in my mind, my thoughts, and also what's going on in my body. Um, often we will find that there is a relationship between what's going on. So if I'm, you know, suddenly aware of um, an anxious thought or an obsessive thought or a self-critical thought. Just take a moment, you know, in, in that, in that situation to just check in with your body. So for me, I might notice that my heart is racing or my stomach is tight or my jaw is tight or my shoulders are up by my ears. So my body is responding or reacting to what's going on in my mind. And I think that we can also notice at other times, so maybe I have some pain in my back. And then from that pain in my back, I might have a feeling of anger towards it. And then I don't want to feel angry. And I start to think about, okay, I got to get rid of this pain. What am I supposed to do about this? I have to call someone. I can't believe I did that thing again. And so our sensations can have an effect on our thoughts. Our thoughts can have an effect on our sensations. And so we want to be interested in that, in that connection to see, you know, sometimes is there a way that I can shift my thinking to see what effect that has on my body? Or even sometimes, you know, just, just the act of softening my shoulders or taking a deep nourishing breath can create some spaciousness in my mind or some creativity can open up. And so we can kind of look at it from either, either of those perspectives. So on your website, cool website, by the way, emilyherzland.com. So all our listeners go check it out. Um, Thank you. You, start, you started meditating in 2003 to cope with a chronic illness. Um, can you just talk about that experience and how it informs your work today? Yeah. Um, 
So I, you know, since I was young, have uh, have had a, an autoimmune disorder. Um, and at the time when I came to meditation, I was really struggling with my autoimmune disorder. I was having a lot of flare-ups. This was a time when I was in high school. I was missing a lot of school uh, because of it. And I was also, um, several, a couple members of my family were, were also undergoing cancer treatment at the same time. So it was just a very difficult time. And I very thankfully had uh, one of my high school teachers who's a very perceptive and caring person, um, gave me a book about meditation as a way of helping me to cope with um, with the anxiety, with the stress I was experiencing, with the fear that I was experiencing. And it wasn't, uh, it, it honestly wasn't something that I wanted to do. <laughs> um, I, I didn't see myself as a meditator. It wasn't the picture that I had in my head of a person who meditates did not line up with who I saw myself as at that time in my life. Um, and, you know, just as you, uh, suggested at the start of our, our time today that we just sit for 30 seconds and do nothing. At that time in my life, that idea was just ridiculous. <laughs> I couldn't really, like, you want me to do what? But I really needed something to help me cope. And so I was willing to give it a try. And it, it really surprised me how how quickly i connected with it um it it really gave me this very valuable time to just sit to experience what wasn't wrong with my body to experience what was working just fine and to notice that i had these things called thoughts and that they weren't always true and they weren't always helpful, and I didn't have to follow them all the time, and that I could choose to say, thank you, not right now, I'm going to just rest right now, and not worry about all those things, I don't need to do that right now, um, Was this was extremely profound. Um, in terms of how it's helped me with my own health issues, um, I feel that it has certainly helped me to have um, a greater awareness of the signals that my body tells me when it needs rest, when I'm pushing it too much, um, and to have less self-criticism around, around those things. I think a lot of people have a very hard time giving, giving ourselves permission to, to rest I think for a lot of reasons in our culture, that's very hard to do. Um, and I'm definitely not perfect at it, but it's, it's helped me a lot. And I think that that's helped me to manage, um, my own, my own health issues better. Um, and, and just to have more kindness towards myself that it's not something that is my fault. Um, that it's okay. That this is what bodies do sometimes, and that that's okay. That's human. Yeah, I love what you said about just like you have thoughts, 
they're there, but you don't you don't necessarily have to listen to them all the time. Maybe maybe they do make good good suggestions here and there, right? But yeah, uh, yeah, we're not you, we're not trying to get rid of our thoughts. We don't we're we're not trying in meditation to not think. Because we wouldn't be having this conversation right now if we didn't have thoughts. It would be a catastrophic, you know, event if we got rid of all of our thoughts forever. So, you know, we don't want that, but we want to make different choices. We want to have choice when it comes to how we relate to our thoughts. Yeah. As we said earlier, you were trained at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Um, do you practice the, the Jewish faith? Uh, yes, I was raised Jewish. I, I am Jewish. Um, and I would, you know, say that I, um, that my meditation practice, my mindfulness practice and my, my experience, um, of studying Buddhism, um, has really deepened my connection to Judaism and Judaism as a spiritual practice. Yeah, because I think it's a lot of times when we think of mindfulness, it can just be sort of like secular. And then it's sort of do you do people choose to like continue with another religious path like on top of that? So could you elaborate more on that? How like even though, you know, mindfulness, as you said, a lot of it's grounded in Buddhism, like how that strengthens your uh, Jewish faith? Yeah, well, first, I guess I'd say that the the way that. I think most of us know, know mindfulness, you know, especially maybe in the medical and healthcare community that is, that is grounded in, you know, Buddhist mindfulness teachings. There, there certainly is mindfulness in many spiritual traditions. It's not only in Buddhism. Um, but I do think that the way that, you know, we've learned to, um, to teach mindfulness in healthcare settings certainly um, comes out of the Buddhist tradition. Um, you know, in terms of my own personal relationship to Judaism, you know, there, I want to say there are so many ways, just as there are many different kinds of meditation, there are so many ways to be Jewish. And so I don't want to speak for everybody. Um, but you know, the idea of being present with, with this moment and what we are doing, I think is, is deeply, deeply Jewish. Um, being able to pause and to bless this moment, to bless my food, to express blessings for, you know, wonderful things that are happening for new things, you know, to say this, this, prayer, the Shehachianu, when we experience something for the first time, you know, if I wasn't present, I might miss that this was a new experience. Um, and for me as well, you know, the practice of Shabbat, of keeping a Sabbath day, um, you know, is itself a, um, you know, a way of connecting with presence and rest and letting go of doing, um, it's, it's like a day of not doing, um, and letting be, you know, and there's a lot of different ways to observe Shabbat that might look different for different people, depending on how you 
practice and relate to to Judaism. But for me, um, that's that's also been a very a very important part of my um, my Jewish practice. A couple more questions for you here. So something I've been kind of toying around with is just how much mindfulness is enough is just kind of like a, a good balance. Like you can argue, right, that a person could have a fruitful uh, spiritual practice just from meditating five minutes a day. But then you have people who go all the way through uh, monastic life and, and kind of, you know, that is their their thing that they are they live a mindful life. So um, do you, have you kind of reflected on that in your own life and, and, and sort of how much I, I know you can even live in a, in a maybe not a monastic way uh, and, and still like live, like embody mindfulness completely. But have you sort of like grappled with with that at all? And like how how much kind of mindfulness uh, is, is like a good balance? I'm not a hundred percent sure I understand your question. Um, could you say a little bit more? Sure. It's, it's, um, like if you kind of, if someone values, right, uh, like mindfulness as like a, uh, like a good part of their life in terms of just like being present in the moment, um, and, and doing a lot of the things, uh, you described earlier in terms of just tuning into your body, uh, et cetera. Like how, how do you find a balance of whether you should, you know, meditate a certain amount or, or, or just feel more balanced in terms of how big a part or mindfulness is playing in your life? Is that more clear? Um, so I guess, are you asking, like, how do you decide, like, how long to meditate or, you know, to go on retreats or... Um, I guess, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it's it I guess it's sort of hard to articulate. Um I guess for for one person, like like just meditating for for 20 minutes a day is like is like an ample like mindfulness practice whereas like mm. other individuals choose to go on to like you said like retreats or even live like a like a full-blown like like monastic life, right? So right, it's like Right. How do you sort of um, discern where you like fall on that spectrum? And have you had to like sort of, uh, you know, think critically about that? Mm. That's a really interesting question. Um, Because I know so many people who have, you know, have made a lot of different choices in this regard. You know, I know people who have gone, you know, for long retreats or, you know, taken monastic vows for periods of time. Um, it's not something that I have personally um, felt the, the need to do for, for myself, though I do, um, I do value retreat practice in particular, you know, when when it is possible to go away for a week or 10 days to be in a retreat setting in silence um, as a way of deepening my practice, as a way of 
um, you know, seeing what is here underneath that I may not have as much um, space or um, time to to experience and work with in the sort of hecticness of just day-to-day life. I think what your question is sort of making me think of is a question that I hear a lot, which is how do I know, how do I know if, if my meditation practice is working? Um, and one of my teachers answered, answered that question. It's really stuck with me that we know our meditation is working if we notice that when things in our life change, we meet those changes with more skillfulness and compassion. Or if we notice when we're stressed, we're reacting differently, less habitually. If we notice when we're angry, we're less likely to um, to lash out. So, so we notice we're we're able to know if our meditation practice is working, if we are seeing the effects of it in our daily lives and how we handle stress, pain, difficulty. Um, you know, how we show up if that is changing, if we're seeing that changing. And so I guess an answer you know, to your question might be is if you, if you're seeing those changes, maybe what you're doing is, is enough. Maybe it's good. Um, you know, in terms of how we make decisions about, um, you know, our long-term relationship to spirituality, do I want to be more you know, a lay person or monastic. Um, I really don't, I don't know that there's any particular guidance or wisdom that I can, that I can offer. Um, I think that is so, it's so individual and personal. All right. Time for a lightning round, a series of fast paced questions that tell us more about you. Okay. Um, so one thing we failed to mention is you're also an accomplished writer. Any current projects? I am working on a book about mindfulness and Judaism. Um, how to how to approach Judaism as a path to awakening and presence. What is your biggest pet peeve? <laughs> Leaf blowers. <laughs> Favorite place to hang out in New York? Socrates Sculpture Park in Astoria. But you can uh, get pretty mindful and philosophical there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a wonderful park with outdoor art exhibits. So it's been a place that during the pandemic that, um, you know, is is still able to provide art for people and there's a lot of great community um uh gatherings and um or or initiatives that happen there 
the most ridiculous thing you've seen on a New York subway? Oh my gosh, it's been so long since I've been on the subway. <laughs> well, this isn't really funny, but I had a very upsetting incident once where a man was sort of trying to grab my hand and kiss it. Um, and that was a very upsetting and I guess ridiculous experience and one that I'm sure I'm not the only, um, person who has experienced an unwanted, um, you know, uh, situation like that lastly uh in your life who's the most influential mindfulness teacher sylvia borstein is one of my favorite mindfulness teachers i i love her her humor her heartfulness um and her um uh her identity as both a Buddhist and a, and a Jew and how she writes and talks about that. I really connect with her. Emily Herzlin, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.